We're going to be in Daniel chapter 12, beginning at verse 2. So we've been through some very sweeping prophecies, and in particular, the last three chapters of the book of Daniel is really one prophecy, but it's one prophecy that runs all the way from Daniel's day all the way to the millennium. It really doesn't talk about the uh, great white throne judgment like John does in the book of the Revelation. And uh, I know those of you that went through Revelation with us, just the last book we did, a lot of this stuff is, is ringing you know, very close, and uh, scholars in the last 200 years anyway have been using Daniel to define terms in Revelation and Revelation to define terms in Daniel. And you'll find in this message, which is somewhat redundant, but uh, we'll be uh, jumping back and forth between Daniel and the book of the Revelation, you know. Um, and we, I covered this verse last week, and many of them that sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake some to everlasting life, and some to everlasting shame. And I talked about the fact of the resurrection, and while it seems almost impossible to believe, my father was cremated in 1972. My mother we buried in a casket in, in 1998. Uh, both of them are really just dust now. It's, it's hard to imagine that God will speak one word. You know, they said when Jesus stood outside of Lazarus' tomb, uh, and he had just told uh, Martha that his, her brother would rise again, that he shouted with a loud voice. He said, Lazarus, come forth. And, you know, old southern preachers are great at saying if he hadn't said Lazarus, everybody in the graves would have come forth. And uh, the day will come when he does that. He's going to call forth the saved of all the earth first. And that's the sum to everlasting life. And then he's going to call a thousand years later, as I understand it, after the millennium, before the white throne judgment, he's going to call all the dead of all the earth, the lost of all the earth, to uh, rise to everlasting contempt. So what you have here in the Old Testament, uh, 600 years before Christ, I may have that wrong, but somewhere around 600 years before Christ, you have this prophecy of the resurrection. And you know that in the Old Testament, we have this promise, as unlikely as it seems for us, uh, that one day we will stand again uh, before God, no matter how long it is from the time we die until the time of the resurrection. Um, I imagine, and I, I imagine this, but I don't know if it's true. I imagine that the first thing we'll see is Jesus. Just like Lazarus, the first thing he saw was Jesus. I don't know what the resurrection will be like. I have to imagine it'll be so quick. We, we won't understand it. We won't understand what happened. Uh, but I don't know. Uh, let me do the next slide. When you, when you go into the Old Testament, there are those that will tell you that the book of Job was the oldest book of the Bible. And um, I don't think that's true, by the way. But uh, if, my, if my Hebrew teacher was correct, actually Genesis 1, 1 is the oldest book in the Bible. And it began being writing. Writing began with Adam and was written on scrolls. And the scrolls were handed down from uh, uh, father to father. And uh, all the way up until Moses got them and rewrote them and put them in a book, as I understand it. But Job goes back pretty far. And, and, and while it seems impossible... The Old Testament is very clear about the fact of the resurrection. Uh, for I know that my Redeemer liveth, Job spoke, 
at one of the worst times in his life, and that he shall stand at that later day upon the earth, and, I, and, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Job had a clear understanding of the resurrection, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. I'll see him with my own eyes, though my reins, and the Hebrew word there is actually kidneys, uh, we think of our heart, as the center of our being, we think of our mind as the center of our being. But in that day, they're talking about the organs. So my, though my kidneys uh, be consumed within me, even though I've rotted away, in other words, I still believe I will see God. The question is not then will we rise. The question is when. Which resurrection will you attain? You know, the, ri- the saved will be part of the first resurrection. The lost will be part of the second resurrection. The first resurrection will be a resurrection unto life. The second resurrection will be a resurrection unto death. Uh, and this, this we went over last week. Now the clear teaching of the Old and the New Testament is that we will die, we will decompose, and will be raised at a later date. And that's important stuff. A lot of people don't believe that. But the Bible is very clear that everybody is an eternal being. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. It's not a question of uh, will I live again, it's a question of where will I live again. And that's the important thing. God created us as eternal beings, and whether we're eternally saved or eternity, eternally lost, we will live forever. That's the way God made us. Now, when you come up to Jesus' day, even the most knowledgeable Jews of Jesus' day did not believe in conscious life in between death and the resurrection they had and i don't i don't i'm pretty confident it wasn't their term uh but uh the term we use nowadays is soul sleep you die you're unconscious you don't know anything and at the resurrection you're awakened you slept through that entire time in my mother's case we're talking 30 years in uh, david's case we're talking 3000 years you know in abraham's case we're talking 4000 years if the resurrection were today But even the most knowledgeable Jews of Jesus' day didn't understand that. They held to this view that there was unconsciousness in between. And they got into an argument with the Lord Jesus Christ. It wasn't really about about eternal life. It was more about who he thinks he is. But in the process of that discussion, there's points that Jesus makes that if you read this carefully, you'll see he is, in fact, talking about what it's like to be dead. Uh, what is it like to be dead, you know? And, of course, uh, Jesus had made a reference to Abraham, and, and they had called him all kinds of names, and he, he had actually uh, at one point said they were of their father, the devil, uh, at the end of this John chapter 8 passage. But they asked him in verse 53, are you greater? Or Really, I think they'd say, do you think you're greater than our father Abraham, which is dead, and the prophets, which are dead, whom thou makest thyself to be. And Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It's my Father that honors me, of whom ye say he is your God. Yet ye have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say that I don't know him, I would be a liar, just like you. But I know him, and I keep his sayings. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it. And was glad. Now, there's a there's an emphasis here. You notice I put the emphasis on the Bible. Uh, the, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. It isn't that they said to him, "Have you seen Abraham?" He said to them, "He rejoiced to see my day." 
So there's a little turnaround there. Jesus is not exactly answering the question the way they expect it to be answered. And they said unto him, you're not even 50 years old. How could you have seen our father Abraham? Uh, have you seen Abraham? How could have you seen our father? Abraham in Jesus's day. When Jesus walked this earth, Abraham had been dead for 2,000 years. Dead as the world thinks of dead. Not dead as, as God thinks of dead. And this passage... This passage becomes so great when you think in the context of what I'm attempting to show you. The question of the Jews was, who do you make yourself to be? Jesus is answering that question in verse 58. He said, verily, verily, truly, truly, amen, amen, literally in the Greek. I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Powerful statement. Uh, and, and made more powerful in the Greek. The word Abraham was is agenita, which means came into being. It means he didn't exist and then he came into being. Before Abraham came into being, before Abraham was a twinkle in dad's eyes when he first heard that mom was pregnant, before Abraham came into being, ego, the word I, proper word for I, I, me, Present continuous tense. I, I am. In, in, the, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew was translated, I am that I am. Probably, you could safely translate this, I am that I continue to be. And the Jews recognized immediately, you know, a lot of times uh, we would miss some of these statements if it weren't for the fact that when he said them, the Jews would try to stone him, then took the up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. So anytime you hear that the Jews have picked up stones to, to stone the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to go back and say, what did he say that really made him angry? Because that's sort of like God's exclamation point about what's been said. So you got to go back and you know, you got to say, Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it. And then he says, before Abraham, I am. Now, certainly this statement is talking about the fact that Jesus is eternal. There's, there's no question about that. So that, that. That to me is the main thrust of the passage. But my point today is a little more subtle. And that is that Abraham, 2,000 years after he died, was alive and looking forward to seeing Jesus leave heaven and be born as a human. Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he saw it. Abraham was alive and well 2,000 years after he physically died. Now, you can find the same thing throughout the Bible. I mean, this is not any one verse support. John said in John chapter 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, was with God. Prostantheon was in equal uh, partnership with God. And the word was God. And then later, John says in John chapter 114, he, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. So we have this pre-existent deity who's co-equal with the father in John 1, who becomes flesh in John chapter 114 when Abraham rejoiced to see his day. Abraham was alive and a conscious for that 
event. Similar, you find it, you find this all throughout. After six days, Jesus takes Peter and James and John, his brother, and bringing them up into a high mountain. And he was transfigured before them. He became what he looks like now. And you, you can find descriptions of him throughout the Bible. Ezekiel has a description. Uh, Daniel has a description. John has a description when he first saw him in Revelation chapter one. We know what he looks like. Well, we have a written description of what he looks like, you know. And after he was transfigured uh, before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment white as light, and behold, there appeared unto them Moses. Moses, who's been dead for 1,400 years, and Elijah, who's been dead for 900 years, appear with Jesus, and they're talking with him. This isn't the first resurrection. They just paid a visit to earth in their heavenly bodies. And the interesting thing, and I, I don't know how it happened, but Peter seemed to be able to recognize them. Now, the point that I'm making is kind of unrelated to the scriptures, but that consciousness after death exists before the resurrection. My mother, my father are not in some sense of soul sleep. They're very conscious, very aware. I don't know how time passes for them. I don't know how time passes for God. I don't know how that works. But they're aware and they see what's going on. This is a fact of Scripture. And if you believe in Jesus, you have to believe these words of His. You have to believe that this is true. Now, when speaking to Martha, uh, just after her brother died, three days after her brother died, uh, Jesus said unto her, your brother will rise again. Now she's thinking soul sleep. She's thinking, yeah, he's dead now. And somewhere way off in the future, there's going to be a resurrection and he'll live again. Jesus isn't talking about that at all. Jesus is there to raise him right now from the dead just to prove he is who he says he is. You know, after six days, I'm sorry. Jesus said unto her, that brother shall rise again. Martha said unto him, yeah I, yeah, I got the right verse on for you. I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. So she's thinking typical Old Testament Jewish theology. She's right about that. That's what the Old Testament teaches. There's a new clarification in the New Testament. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And she's thinking, yeah, yeah, I know. I know that stuff, you know. But then he makes this statement. He says, whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Now, that's a whole different statement. And that means we're going to do what Jesus used the phrase, fall asleep. We're going to fall asleep in Christ and wake up in eternity Moments later, I remember Corey Ten Boom one time was talking about the fact that she was in a concentration camp and she was so malnourished as they were standing for morning uh, roll call that she passed out. And she said that was the scariest thing for her to black out because she thought that she was dying and she thought she'd see Jesus. And she was concerned that she, she didn't, when she blacked out, she was concerned that she didn't see the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, of course, she realized she blacked out, she didn't die, so that's what the problem was. Whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Do you believe this, Martha? Do you believe this church? You know, we set aside this tent and step into the presence of Almighty God. Paul said to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This is the great promise. And I, although I went over the two resurrections last week, I didn't want to skip this part with you. I wanted you to see that the Bible clearly teaches consciousness, soul consciousness after death, that we will be alive and well 
We'll know what's going on. We'll look forward to things. Abraham looked forward to something. You don't think of that too much about people in heaven. You think they live in the eternal now. I don't know if you've thought much about time with God. It actually messes with your mind if you start thinking that way. But if you think about time in heaven and think that Abraham looked forward to something, he's waiting for something to pass called time, whatever that is. I don't, I don't know what that is. You know, I, I heard someone say years ago that when I die and go to heaven, that my mother will have just gotten there. That we'll all arrive at heaven at the same time because there's no time in heaven. But that's not what this verse would indicate. This verse would indicate that my mother is looking forward to me getting there. You see what I'm saying? So there's some, some sense of time in that. Well, believers in Jesus will never die. It's said that we fall asleep in Christ, but we wake up in eternity. Man has a problem. And that problem is sin. And sin separates us from God. And that separation from God is what we, what we call, the word we use for death is a word that means separation. Now we think of death as, as separation of my living soul from my dead body. Separation of soul and body. But the, the real method, the message of the word death is separation of, of us from God. And in that sense, we are not separated from God. See, a believer is not separated from God. God has provided a solution for the problem of sin. The cost of sin is separation from God. The problem of sin has been solved in the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Christ, we live into the age. We have everlasting life. Everlasting is not a, really a Greek word. It's into the age. We live into the age of eternity is the idea. We're alive now and we live into the age of eternity. In Jesus, we don't just find a pardon which is to say our sins are ignored. It isn't like God looked down through the uh, eons of history and he looked at me and he said, oh, it's okay, Bob. I, I know you did this and you did that and you did this other thing and uh, it's all right. I'll forget about it. That isn't what happened. That's a pardon. A pardon means I know you did wrong and it's okay. I'm, I'm, I'm going to say it's okay. In Jesus, it's quite different. In the Lord Jesus Christ, we find redemption. And that is we owe a debt, but Jesus paid it. It's like, you know, you're going, you cash in your bottles, you redeem them. The store buys them back from you. Uh, Jesus went onto that cross and purchased our sins with his own blood, purchased and paid for our sins with his own blood. In Jesus, we find forgiveness. Thus, having our sins paid for in the Lord Jesus Christ, God can now treat us as equal as if we had never sinned. It isn't that we had never sinned. It's that Jesus took our sins upon himself, you see. In Christ, we find justification. Justification, some people like to remember it by just as if I've never sinned. But justification is, is a little more complicated than that. It's a, it's a legal term. It's a judicial, a judge makes this declaration. It's a judicial declaration of non-guilt. So when you opened your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ and confessed your sins and asked Him to forgive you of your sins and come into your life and save you, which we frequently call the sinner's prayer. When you do that, you see, God then bounds the gavel down. Of course, the, the sins that you committed were paid for by Christ. The Christ's blood washed you of your sins and His resurrection provides the power to live a new life. But the judge of all the earth pounds down his gavel and he says, not guilty. 
Not that I'm not guilty because I didn't do anything wrong, because I've done a lot wrong, but I'm not guilty because Jesus took my guilt. The judge of all the earth took my place. Don't put that off. If you haven't got that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, don't delay. I don't know many people who believe the Bible that don't believe we're in the last days right now. If you've been trusting good works or your church membership to get you into heaven, give it up right now. You know, if you have hope in anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, abandon it now before it's too late. Turn to Jesus today and ask him to save you and ask him to let his death be for you. Well, that's a little side rub, isn't it? Verse 4. But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. It's easy to get lost in this verse, and I'm going to try not to. Uh, there's an awful lot of discussion that's been made over this passage about uh, knowledge increasing and travel increasing, and, and I, I, I've read a lot of different people comment about it, uh, how for... Uh, 5,000 years, a message was carried by horseback, and now it's carried at the speed of light. But I'm going to try to avoid that. The, the point here in this verse, which is interesting, and we could spend some time here, but the point is that the book's closed. When Daniel was alive, he closed the book, and it wouldn't be opened until the time of the end. Uh, and at the time of the end, people would begin to understand it. I'd like to think that we're in the time of the end, and that the people that are now opening this book and studying it and spending time in it are understanding it in a way that it's never been understood before. And you can prove this by just reading some of the church fathers. They didn't have a better grasp on this than you do. It's interesting. There were a few that would actually write and teach exactly like I'm writing and teaching, but they were in the great minority. The great majority of them didn't understand these books at all. Oh. The simple fact is that in the last hundred years, prophecy has opened up in ways that have never been understood before. And that's, that's exciting, but it's also frightening because we know that time is short. We know that the message is important, you know. And then we have this, the continuation of the vision, uh, this three-chapter vision. And then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, there stood other two, the one on this side of the bank of the river and the other on the other side. Now, this started with a vision of Christ hovering above the water. And as he looks again, he sees two more beings. Uh, we think they're angels. Uh, the one on the side of the bank and the other on the other side. And one said to the man clothed in the linen, that's the guy hovering over the water, which was upon the water of the river. How long shall it be to the end of these things? You know. I think it's safe to move on. So we got three people here, Jesus in the center, you know, uh, one on each side of the river. And if you go to Revelation chapter 10, you see this exact same vision. The same vision with two different messages, both related to the end of time, though, both, both clearly in the same context. And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven. Now this mighty angel, mighty this extremely strong messenger, you could translate that, 
clothed with a cloud and a rainbow was upon his head and his face was it were the sun and his feet as pillars of fire. He had in his hand a little book and set his right foot upon the sea, which represents all the Gentile nations and his left foot on the earth, which represents Israel. Uh, and, and you clearly, if you're familiar with Revelation chapter one at all, you clearly know this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you get to Revelation chapter five and he's holding the little book. He's dressed exactly like this. This is exactly how he looks. And he's holding the little book. A little book is all that it's going to take to redeem earth. It's all our, all our sin debt, the world's sin debt in that little book. What it's going to take. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion utters. I lost my place, sorry. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roareth. And when he had cried, seven thunders uttered their voices. John wanted to write about the seven thunders, but God told him not to. Um, so we got to get down to six, just this little thing that says, no, don't write that down, <laughs> skip that. Verse six, and he, that's Jesus, standing on the water with one foot on the land, in the book of the Revelation, swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and earth, and the things that therein are in the earth, and the things that therein are in the sea, and the things which therein are. This is the declaration that there should be time no longer. And as we went through the book of the Revelation, I believe I told you that this, I believe, is Jesus Christ claiming earth for himself. And this is the declaration that there'll be no more delay. Time no longer really should be translated no more delay. That the tribulation starts now. All right. So when we get all the way back to Daniel, uh, 2,600 years earlier, the angel asked the question of Jesus hovering over the water, how long? So the, re the, the tribulation starts, chapter 10 and verse 6 of the book of the Revelation, the tribulation starts. The question is asked in Daniel, how long? Uh, did I move that up? There. So we're back in Daniel now, 1,600 years earlier. And I heard the man clothed in linen, that's Jesus, in my mind anyway, which was upon the water of the river, when he held up his right hand and his left hand unto heaven, swear by him that liveth forever, so in the name of God the Father, he swears this, that, I lost my place, sorry, that it shall be for a time, times, and a half. And when he shall have accomplished to scatter the power of the holy people, all these things shall be finished. So whereas in Revelation, we have a declaration of the start of the tribu tribulation, in Daniel, we have an explanation of how long it would be, the duration if you will, of the Great Tribulation. It's one of the most mentioned facts in prophecy is how long the Great Tribulation will be. We always think of it as seven years, but the truth is the first three and a half years is the period of time Jesus called the beginning of sorrows. The second half is Great Tribulation, and it's one, two, and a half periods of time. It's also, I mean, other prophecies, 42 months, it's three and a half years. It's 1,260 days. And here, of course, in Daniel, time, times, and time and a half. It's a single, a duo, and a split. It's said both as a promise to believers that there is an end to look forward to in a time of horror and great destruction. They know exactly how long they have to hang in there. It's also a warning to the world that things will not go as they are forever. And I heard and understood not. And then I said, oh, my Lord, what shall be the end of these things? And he said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the end. It's interesting to me to note that Daniel didn't know what all this was about. 
I've often wondered, Isaiah, when he saw these things and wrote these things, Ezekiel, when he had his visions, did the prophets understand their prophecies? And the answer is, not always. They didn't. I don't get it, Daniel said. And Jesus said, don't worry about it. Close the book. Just write it down and save it. I think we're fooling ourselves if we think we need to understand everything God is doing in our lives. You know, if, if God would have written out a map for less about what was going to happen on that Sunday night, he wouldn't have believed it anyway. You know, you just say, okay, Lord, I'm going to take one step at a time. That's what we're promised. The word is a lamp to my feet, not a beam to show the next six months. And we have to do that. We have to just trust him one step at a time. You know, it's as if my tomato plants could understand why I'm trimming off the excess branches in order to get them to grow bigger fruit. They can't understand it, but I believe the tomato plant has a better chance of understanding what I'm doing when I'm pruning him than I do of what God's doing in my life. I think we're fooling ourselves if we think we need to understand. We're not told to understand. We're told to trust and to know that he loves us. And whatever you're going through at this time is best. God knows what he's doing. And I'll tell you, there's times in life that that'll challenge that to trust that God knows what He's doing and to trust that God is in control. And you know the great message of the book of Daniel as you find it consistently consistently in every chapter is that God rules in the kingdom of men. Now we look at Washington, D.C. and we look at what's going on in the world and we think, man, this world is out of control. And it seems that way to us, but the world is not out of control. It's exactly where it's going to be, where God wants it to be. When you think about it, there's, there's, I lost the number, 1,260 days of great tribulation. Every day is numbered. Think about that. Every day is numbered. But the one thing, you know, I've often looked at the variety of God and thought God is an amazing uh, God of variety, but he's also an amazing God of physics and numbers. He is definitely a mathematician, and he knows what number day we're in. He knows what number you're in. He knows how many days and hours and minutes you have left. You know, we're, act, we're to act as if we don't have many left. And that's probably a good way to act. You know, when our world falls into chaos, the world not, will not understand what's happening. But you know, you know what's happening. They will understand, you will understand that God has a plan and God knows what he's doing. Your peace and chaos will speak more to the lost world than any sermon I would ever preach. Your patience and tribulation your love for others at a time of hatred, your compassion on the troubled world will bring light to the lost in darkness. You have to hold on to that. You have to hold on to your faith and let it shine when things are going wrong. The main point of Daniel, God rules in the kingdoms of men. That's what he told Nebuchadnezzar when he finished up interpreting that dream. And just a few more prophecies. And many shall be purified and made white and tried. But the wicked shall do wickedly and none of the wicked shall understand. But the wise shall understand. Now I don't know if you picked up on that. No, I haven't gotten there yet. What did I do? Did I lose my place? Yeah. Okay, so from Daniel to the end, many have been saved. In the last 2,600 years, many have been purified. Many have been made white. Many have come to Christ, and the wicked have certainly done wickedly. You don't need to know much about history at all. You know. And then moving on. And from the, time, from, from, the, from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away. Now you know, if you've been with me in this, 
Um, you know that that's talking about the abomination of desolation or the abomination that maketh desolate. It's the time when Antichrist, as did Antiochus, it's the time when Antichrist will enter into the Holy of Holies, desecrate it, and declare himself to be God. That's the time of the beginning of the Great Tribulation. And from the time that the daily sacrifice shall be taken away, the abomination of desolation, and the abomination that make it desolate set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Now, wait a minute. There's 30 days added on. See that? And then you read verse 12. Blessed is he that waited and cometh to the 1,305 and 30 days. There's another 45 days tacked on to the 1,250 days. And theologians have talked about those 75 days for a long time. And the bottom line is, I don't think anyone knows the answer to it. It's just know that the tribulation is going to end and the millennial is going to start and they're probably going to be 75 days apart. We don't know what's going on. There is a judgment of the nations involved. It's possible. There's going to be a cleansing of the temple during that time, I imagine. There'll be a separation of the sheep and the goats. That's what Jesus told his disciples. Jesus will do a full restoration of planet Earth, and perhaps that'll take him some time. It only took him seven days the last time. But uh, there's going to be a full restoration from the damages of the tribulation. You know, we're, we're trying to save trees. The tribulation is going to burn every tree to the ground. We're trying to save the ocean. The oceans are going to be dead by the time the tribulation is over. Uh, everything in the oceans is going to be dead. The earth is going to be a burned out hulk when it's over, and Jesus is going to have to restore it. So I imagine there's going to need to be time for setting up the millennial kingdom. And, and if I understand prophecy, which isn't real clear on this, we're going to have a job to do too. While I believe we're going to be raptured out at the beginning of the tribulation, I not only believe it, I'm hoping uh, that we'll be raptured out at the beginning of the tribulation. And we'll, we'll be up there for the full, I hope the full seven years. When we come back with Jesus, as the Bible says, we'll come back with Jesus. I believe there'll be work for us to do, and it's entirely possible we'll need a little training. Uh, my Hebrew instructor, Dr. David Skinner, said we're going to have to take Hebrew classes. But I can tell you from uh, personal experience that 75 days is not enough. Uh, it's not enough. I, I might do it in 75 years, but not 75 days. Uh, we were all thinking that maybe God would just zap us with the gift of speaking in tongues, particularly Hebrew, uh, because he thinks that's going to be the language of heaven. Um, I don't know. Passage ends here. Daniel ends here. But go your way till the end be, for thou shalt rest and stand in thy lot at the end of days. The point is, of course, that there's a plan here and a place for Daniel. There's a plan for your life and a place for you at the end of time. You want to be sure you're in your place. That's the point. At the end of days, he will be there. We'll meet him. We'll get to talk to him. And he'll be in his place. I don't know what that means. Standing in your lot. Apparently, they'll stand by groups. Maybe the Baptists and the Methodists won't get along in heaven, and they'll have to put us in separate corrals. I don't know. But I don't believe that. I don't believe that. But there is a spot reserved. There's a spot with your name on it. And the question is, will you be in the spot that God has reserved for you? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this time together. Thank you for this book. I know I was a little reluctant to start it, but I've enjoyed going through it, and I trust that your people have as well. I pray, Father, that you'd watch over us as we go out. I pray, Father, that you'd help us. 
now to know clearly whether our hearts are in tune with yours. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone here today, Lord, I pray that this would be the day they bow their heart to Jesus, confess that they failed, they failed miserably at living a righteous life, and call on your son Jesus to save them. And I know, Father, like you did in my life, you'll be quick to change them into the person you want them to be. I pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.